Corinthians chapter 13, the first three verses, okay? And uh, before I read those first three verses, I want to give you a little my history. So whenever I became a Christian about 40 years ago, the first Bible I bought was a King James Version, okay? And so I was reading, Thou, O Lord, art a shield for me, those he's and thou's. You know, and that's the way I learned the Bible. And still today, you know, uh, that's, that's where my brain kind of goes to a lot of times is the these and the thou's. But it, uh, in that Bible, there was, uh, we, we went to this church and we were greeters. And so they said, okay, every Sunday before you, you greet, read, read uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, okay? And so I was reading that in my Bible, and I would read that word charity. The word charity was the way it was written, uh, translated um, back many, many years ago um, from uh, the Greek, the original Greek, the word is agape. You know, it's a special kind of love. It's a God kind of love. It's a spirit put in us kind of love, okay? And so the, the, the translators used the word uh, charity. Now, you know, it wasn't because they, they didn't know about the word love. Actually, the Tyndale Bible had been written 85 years before the King James, and uh, they used the word love there. So why did the translators of the King James Version want to use the word charity? And that's what I think the Lord wants to share this morning is, is a greater understanding of the word agape, of the word charity, the words love, okay? Those three words. Because in our culture today, we're kind of, you know, the culture doesn't tie those words to our faith. They don't see love as the way it was back, agape love. They don't see love like charity love. Most don't. Most don't. Our, our culture is moving away from that. I even remember last night, Pastor Ron was sharing a little bit about that. And uh, I know the Lord was working in my heart, okay? You need to have, I need my spirit to work in you so that you have that agape love, that charity love. Even the word charity, we give to a charity, okay? Or we, we uh, you know, have a charity that we sponsor or something like that, you know? And there's even a whole other meaning for the word charity. And, I, and when you do a little study on this, I, I, I recommend you do. Just take that word agape, okay, the Greek word, and then see what you can learn about what that really means. I could be here the rest of the day, and I know Pastor Ron and our guest speaker probably wouldn't like that, but it's a great word study, okay? So you learn, you know, what it means to love the way Jesus loves. Learn that we may love the way Jesus loves. We need to be able to show the world Jesus' love. That's why he put it in us, okay? And so I was reading um, a book called The Mark of a Christian, okay, or a Christian Mark Schaefer book. And so he was saying love should be one characteristic that separates us from everybody, okay? And so if we don't even know what that looks like, you know, we need, we, Lord, show me your love, okay? So, you know, Jesus is our example. Love is generous. Love sacrifices. It's not something we like to hear, but that's what we as Christians, that's what he's showing us. It's sacrificial. It's giving. It's looking out for our fellow man, whether they're Christian or non-Christian. Looking out for them. Having their best interest at heart. Because God loves them. God loves them. So, I just wanted to share a little bit about that. It, like I said, I could go on and on. But one thing that I want to kind of sum it all up is, is, is I heard a message years ago that the pastor said, there's like three types of givers, people that give, okay? There's the spontaneous giver. And that's like the uh, Good Samaritan. He's going down the road one day, and all of a sudden he sees a guy in a desperate situation, a guy in a bad situation. What does he do? And he shows the love of God, doesn't he? He doesn't just walk on by. 
He was spontaneous. He had that love of God in his heart, and he stopped. And he did everything he could to help that guy. He said, I can come back and do more if I need to. And it wasn't just his money that he did with that spontaneous love. I mean, he, he would do whatever necessary. So then the second type was a strategic giver. Okay, And it's not in any certain order. There's not any one better than the other. But it talks about that strategic uh, giver in Isaiah 32. It says, but generous people plan to do what is generous, and they stand firm in their generosity. And then the third type is the sacrificial giver. And Jesus, he likes to tell us about the sacrificial giver. And the example, one of the examples he gives is the widow. He's in the church, the temple, and he's watching as they're giving their alms, giving their offerings. And the little widow comes up there, and she puts in just her little bit. But Jesus, what does he tell us? He says, she gave, gave all. She gave it all. She gave more. That, he showed us how important our heart is, isn't it, you know, when we give. So this morning as we prepare our hearts for our offering, we just need to remember that God loves. He's our example. Jesus went to the cross for us. That's the greatest example of love, of charity, isn't it? So I just want to, just for not only myself, but for all of us, just to think about that today. As we lift up our prayers for our tithes and offerings, you know, this is, this is for what God wants to do here and all around, actually, right? So gentlemen, as we come forward, we'll ask God's blessing on this offering, and we'll just worship Him with our giving. Thank you, Jesus. We are so glad to be here, so glad to be a part of your family. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you have opened up the windows of heaven and showered down upon each one of us here your goodness, Lord God, for you are a good and mighty God. We're thankful, Lord God, that we are a part of your family. We're thankful that you call us your own. We're thankful that you've given us an opportunity to give. And you show it in your word. You show it in our brothers and sisters what it is to give, Lord. We thank you for doing that for us. So bless these tithes, these offerings. Bless the giver, Lord God. And just use this for your purposes. And we give you all the praise for it. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. God bless you. So this morning, before we get started, we're, uh, you guys are in for a very special treat this morning. Um, we've got uh, John Robb, good friend of ours, part of this church for many, many years, he and his family, and um, guest speaker Alistair Petrie from Canada is going to be sharing the word. But um, let me just, um, just in preparing our hearts for uh, listening to the word of God this morning, I was reminded of this scripture from Luke chapter 10. And Jesus said that um, this is when the 70 disciples, he had sent them out, and uh, they return, and they come back, and they're saying, you know, Lord, we saw, I mean, we were able to cast out demons. You know, we saw all of these amazing signs and wonders. And um, Jesus said to them, he says that, um, and by the way, it says that they were filled with joy, too. You know, that when you're doing God's work, that you go out and do the Lord's work, that you come back, I mean, there's, there's an excitement, there's a sense that, 
you know what, God used me. Use me to, to share a message with somebody, you know, at the office or somebody at school or on the street, a stranger in the marketplace. Uh, you know, we see people all the time that are, you know, they're lonely, they're broken, they're hurting, and you can share a word of hope with them. Um, but Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, and I've given you authority. Listen to this. And this is not just talking about the disciples. It's not just talking about the 12. He's talking about believers. This is the believer's authority. He says, I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy, and nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So this morning, I just want to, before we enter in, uh, you know, that there are many times in our life that we come under spiritual attack, and, uh, you know, sometimes we don't know what that is, and we don't know how to deal with it, but we see from the Scripture, when Jesus was under attack, when he was uh, being tempted by the enemy, he spoke the Word of God. And it's good for you to know that you have authority. God says that he's given you and I authority over the enemy. And so when the enemy comes against you or your children or your finances or your health or any attack that he may bring against you, you don't just have to, you know, you guys remember the old song by the Allman Brothers uh, called Tied to the Whipping Post? Anybody remember that song? Um, well, I'm, I'm going to ask James to come up and sing it for us. <laughs> but, you know, it, it, it's, it, it, he's telling the story of his life that I feel like I've been tied to the whipping post. I've just been beaten and beaten and beaten and beaten. And, you know, the Lord says, you know, you don't have to take that. You can stand up. And James, the book of James says that you can resist the enemy and the enemy will flee from you. And so this morning, why don't we just stand for just a moment and I want us to pray. I want you to just think about areas in your life that, where you feel like you're under attack, uh, that we don't have to take this. Um, if we can stand, we can stand not in our own strength and not on our own power because I have no power. I have no strength against the enemy. But I have the power that God has given me, and, I, and you have the power that God has given you. Remember when he says in the book of Acts that you will go to Jerusalem and you'll be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, and it's this power and in his name that we're able to resist the enemy. And so, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus, we just would stand against any attack of the enemy that would come against our wives or our children or our husbands, uh, attacks for alcohol or drugs or any manner of sin or temptation of sin. God, we would resist the enemy this morning in the name of your Son, Jesus. Lord, we ask that you would break the power of the enemy, that you would cause the enemy to be driven from us and flee. Lord, that you would bring us to the rock that's higher than we are today. God, that uh, we would stand victorious. We would wave the banner of Jesus and declare our victory this morning. God, in the name of your Son, Jesus, we ask this. And God's people said, Amen. Amen and amen. So I want you guys to give a warm welcome. I'm going to ask John Robb and Alistair Peastree to come up, and John's going to give us a quick intro to Alistair, and um, give them a warm welcome, if you would. Make them feel right at home here. Well, it, it's great, great to be here again with all of you. I, I see some familiar faces. Jim, hi. And a number of you uh, that we knew when we were here in Santa Fe years ago. And Ron has been a buddy for now 16 years, I think. 
And we used to pray together in a little group of ministry leaders here uh, at Capital Christian. Remember Capital Christian, some of you? Uh, closer in towards the plaza. And uh, it was special. It was special. This is not an easy city to live in. There is a spiritual battle because this is a very strategic city, Santa Fe. We believe that, right? And I'm in the international prayer movement and had, had the privilege of watching the wonders of God, nation by nation, breakthroughs. As Ron said, when God's people get together and exercise their authority, the enemy leaves, the atmosphere changes, and you see tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands begin to come to Christ. And you see breakthrough of revival. You see wars end. We've seen wars end abruptly as God's people have prayed all around the world. It's just astonishing what God can do through praying people. All the great breakthroughs, starting with the book of Acts, it was because God's people were joining together constantly in prayer. The most strategic thing we can do as brothers and sisters in Christ. My privilege to welcome my other buddy here, Alistair Petrie. Alistair and I have worked together in the international prayer movement. He's a former senior pastor for many years. He's a former news broadcaster before the Lord called him. And he is now the executive director of Partnership Ministries. It's a global ministry. He goes around the world. He's a brilliant teacher of God's word. And he's looked into this issue of the healing of the land. Second Chronicles 7.14. If my people, you know that verse? Will humble themselves first. Pray. Seek my face. Turn from their wicked ways. I will hear from heaven. I'll forgive their sin. I will heal their land. And can we believe that God will heal New Mexico and re release a breakthrough to the whole country? I believe that New Mexico will be used of God to re release revival and breakthrough for the whole nation. It will happen here in New Mexico. Amen? So Alistair's going to come and share now. Let's welcome Alistair Petrie. Sure, I'm on here. Now, something just happened. If you, well, I'll go up in a second. Don't worry. I'm actually, although I live in Canada, Western Canada, I'm actually Scottish. Now, I want to say something to the to the those who took up the offering. Never pass a Scotsman by when it comes to the offering. I still have my offering, and you pass me by. So, and it's a miracle when a Scotsman wants to give an offering to a church. <laughs> So all I'm looking for is an offering plate, and then I'll go up. Well, okay, I'll give you my offering. You can put it in the plate, wherever the plate's gone, because I don't know where they disappeared. There you go. So I can go up here now. <laughs> it is a privilege to be here with you, and uh, John has shared with me a little bit about the, the whole life, the DNA of the light, and, and Pastor Ron, and some of the things going on here, and as I was sitting down there a few moments ago, uh, completely changed message now. And so often the Lord will do this, that when I'm in another area, He will change what I thought I was going to be sharing on. We're living in an extraordinary moment of history. And as we often love to say, what we see going on locally 
is actually an expression. Oh, there's the offering plate. Well, the, right here, the young man, young man right there. And that's your Scottish miracle for the day. What we see going on in the local is actually an expression of the global, which is an expression of the spiritual realm. And God wants us to become obedient to his word in order that through us he is able to do what Pastor Ron was just talking about. And so if you want to understand the global, look at the local. If you want to understand the local, understand why news headlines are so important. Not because I was in that industry for a number of years, but I know how to broadcast bad news. I know what fake news is. I know what false truth is. I know what exaggerational truth is because I was trained in it before I became a Christian. And so when God met me, actually, basically in the studio, a miracle took place. And he said, from now on, I need you to preach the real news as it is. And like John, we've had the privilege of going to many, many nations around the world and watching this process of transformation. Can you imagine what a city is like when the profound presence of God comes and wraps his arms, the love, the, the, the agape, right around the entire city? It doesn't mean everybody becomes a Christian, but when we were involved with the Sentinel group some years ago, expressing transformation. We had only eight communities around the world that we could say those are in transformation, which means politically, financially, morally, ethically, sexually, church-wise, family-wise, there's an expression of God in those places. Well, now we probably have about 2,000 around the world, and that's only been really since about 1998 to 2019. So we don't really know how many cities and communities are actually in transformation. But I'll tell you what we do know. When we go to an area or we work with a city or we work with a business or we work with a community, there's one ingredient that's non-negotiable. Do you know what that is? It's one church fellowship, one group of people in that area who are willing to be obedient no matter what the cost is to the word and promise of God, whatever he calls that particular group to do. Sometimes it can be tedious. Sometimes it can take years. Sometimes it takes just minutes. So sort of my, my challenge, but what I want to share this morning is that very issue. Are you willing to be that fellowship? Can you imagine what it's like when a city like Santa Fe, which is a beautiful city, and John gave me a tour this morning. It's, it's an expression of what, of what is on God's heart for a city like this. Extraordinary faith. Uh, you notice he had a back brace on, and I'm sort of semi-limping. We're both actually wounded warriors. Uh, we had a flood in our house a little while ago. My wife should have been with me. She was poisoned in Israel. We came back, and there's a flood. I wrench muscles and do something here. So he and I both have an MRI. So an MRI is rather like a city going under the investigation and scrutiny of God to see exactly what is going on at the core level that causes pain, dishevelment, shame, upset, a lack of, or, or toxicity, whatever the lack of breakthrough is. I remember a, a chap called Pastor Mike. Pastor Mike was at that time a pastor of a, one of the pastors of a very large city here in the USA. And one day he was going to a pastoral meeting, a meeting of pastors. 
and he was late. And he was in his car, and he was driving. And he got to one of those stop signs where there's a little green arrow that lets you turn. In this case, it was left. But you have to wait for the filter arrow. Well, I was thinking about this last night because John and I were caught for several hours on the Interstate 40 because of a horrible accident that took place. But we didn't know what that was. And we were stuck for hours doing nothing on this interstate. And yet, you get frustrated when you don't know what's happening. Well, Pastor Mike was highly frustrated. And he had what I call the pastoral white-knuckle approach. And he waited for the green arrow, three sets of traffic lights, and it never came. And he actually said out loud, Oh, God, if I could get my hands on the life of the person whose responsibility it is to work these traffic-like signal systems, why, I would, I would. And suddenly, for the first time in his life, he heard the audible voice of God. And God said, Mike, what would you do if I gave to you the person who's responsible for working the traffic light signal systems? And, and Mike was so astonished, he said, God, this is not a good time for you to show up. I, I'm really upset. And suddenly he realized, oh, this is God. I, I've never heard the voice of God before. What do you want me to do, Lord, he then said. And, and God said, I want you to write a letter to the mayor and tell him how much you love him and you love the city. And he was astonished. And he sat there and he said, yes, Lord. And the second he said, yes, Lord, he got this little green arrow. So off he went to the meeting. And then he went back home and he did dutifully write a letter to the mayor, who had never met, they said something to the effect of, Dear Mayor, God loves you, I love you, God's plan for the city, da-da-da-da. And he sent the letter off in the mail. Well, about three days later, he got a telephone call from City Hall. And this Pastor Mike, yes, it is. Well, this is the mayor speaking. What? Did you write me a letter the other day? It's a large city, by the way, much, much larger than Santa Fe. He said, Yes, I, uh, I did. Do you really love me? He said, well, actually, yes, I, I do have a love. I want people to understand the love of God. Do you really believe God loves this city? Yes, I believe he does. Well, I think, I think I'm going to come and see you. I've been looking for a church that's not looking for me as the mayor to come. But if you really feel, you really feel, then, then, then I'll come. So on Sunday, the mayor comes to the church service. At the end of the service, he comes up. And he says to Pastor Mike, is this really true that God's got a plan for my life and for the city? And Mike said, yes, it is. Well, I want to meet that God right now. And three minutes later, Mike introduces the mayor to Jesus. And now the mayor then says to Pastor Mike, are you busy on Thursday? Uh, no. Well, I'm putting on a civic luncheon. Would you like to come down and have lunch in the mayor's office with some of the people I work with? I've never been in the mayor's office, never had a civic luncheon. I'd love to. So a third come, Mike goes down. He sees the mayor, meets the people, has a sumptuous lunch. At the end of that, the mayor comes up and he says, thank you for coming, Pastor Mike, and I'll see you on Sunday. Oh, by the way, just before you go, Joe, would you come over here? 
Joe, I want you to meet my new pastor, Pastor Mike. Mike, I want you to meet Joe. So I got to go now, so Joe and Mike are having a chat. And Mike then says to Joe, well, so what do you do in the city? He says, my job is so awkward. I'm actually the computer engineer for the city planning department that works all the traffic light signal systems in the city. (laughs) True story. For the second time in his life, Mike actually hears the voice of God. And God said, okay, you asked me to give you the life of the person responsible for working the traffic light signal systems. Now what are you going to do with him? And three minutes later, Joe enters the kingdom of God. Because Mike is obedient to the word of God. God always looks for a church, a person, willing to pay the cost of obedience for authentic transformation. Are you that church? Are you that person? As we go through Scripture, we find again and again that there's always this element of people saying, but I haven't got very much to offer the Lord. And God's not looking for what we think quantifies what God needs. He's looking to see if we are willing to give to him what little we have, Genesis 24. And there you have that astonishing story of Rebecca and and an Abraham's servant who's gone to look for a wife for Isaac. And he makes that prayer, oh, when a woman comes, uh, may she offer me water, and may she offer water to my camels. And here's a Rebecca with a bucket of water who appears on the scene at that moment. All she's got is a bucket of water, but that's all it required on the part of God for a miracle to be constituted when she would become the wife of Isaac and so miraculously answer Uh, the prayer of Abraham's servant. You could look, for example, at perhaps David and the five pebbles, 1 Samuel 17. Five little round pebbles, one enormous giant and one slingshot. But you see, it's not about the ammunition, it's about the obedience, the willingness of David to give us five little pebbles. Rebecca offering her bucket of water. It's the same as the little boy that Andrew found with two little fishes and five little barley loaves there in John 6. And the the Greek behind fish is not tuna. It's like a little sardine, a little totty little bit of fish. And there that constitutes enough for not just all the people who were there. And we don't really know how many of the world there. Five, six thousand, probably twelve thousand, because that's only the men they talked about. Never mind the wives and the children, the women and the children. And then twelve baskets left over. The government number of 12, all because of two little fishies, five little barley loaves, and the obedience of Andrew and the obedience of the little boy to give what he had. It's not about the quantity. It's about the response of seeing, here I am. That's what Mike had to learn in the car that day. Or we'll learn about Moses and his staff, a piece of wood. Well, I can't speak. I don't know what is, how to lead people. Take the staff. I'll show you what to do. I'll do the miracles. I'll be the God behind you, Moses. I just need your willingness to speak up my word. And so with that staff, he, God opened up the Red Sea. With that staff, water would come out of a rock. We see again and again in Scripture, it's this issue of being willing to be available, no matter what that cost might be, no matter how improbable it actually might appear to be to the people. We see again and again in Scripture that God is 
the God of promise. And it's all about the cost of obedience, the willingness to allow the Word of God to appeal in our hearts. I think, again, of Scripture. I, I love the power of obedience, but I love the power of, of God's Word. When you see the sense of response, Matthew chapter 8, where the only time the Bible is recorded, Jesus went astonished. Why was he astonished? Because a centurion, it wasn't even a follower of Jesus, obeyed his word. Because the centurion said, my, my servant's ill. And Jesus said, well, I'll come and do a house call. I'll come and minister this afternoon. And the centurion said, no, just give the word. Just give the word, and I know he will be healed. And Jesus was astonished at that. Or I think of Luke chapter 6, when the men had the, 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 the paralyzed hand, and, and, and Jesus said, come, it was on the Sabbath, come and stand up. Stand up, make yourself available. Even in your weakness, make yourself available for me to do in and through you the impossible and the improbable. Again, the Pharisees were trying to catch Jesus out on that particular Sabbath day. And suddenly when he said, now stretch out your hand, it's like God saying, are you willing to stretch out your hand of weakness or your area of weakness for me to take that and do the miracle of shift, change, healing, multiplication? And suddenly the man's hand was made whole. Some years ago, I was down in Brazil at a, at a large prayer conference, and I was sharing on that particular scripture, Luke chapter 6. And I was saying, you know, sometimes we hesitate to put our out to the public display our areas of weakness. We think, well, what, what, what difference would this make? But I shared about how the man out of obedience put his withered hand out. And as I was sharing that and praying with the people, suddenly there was this scream, Portuguese scream, and all these, it was about a thousand leaders got up and began to yell. And I thought, I have said, my interpreter has just done something very wrong because I only have one word of Portuguese, abrogado, which is thank you, that gets me out of problems there. <laughs> and I thought, when I, well, I'm about to leave the stage, and the interpreter says, no, don't go anywhere. Watch what happens. What had happened, there was a woman pastor just at the very back, and she, all she'd heard me say, and I wasn't, I wasn't praying for healing that day. I was saying it's about obedience. And as she stretched out her withered hand, as everybody stretched out their hands to be available to the Lord, suddenly everybody saw it being made whole. It was totally miraculously healed. And she ran up, and suddenly for about 10, 15 minutes, there was this fervor of people in that part of Brazil seeing the miracle of God because of the part of obedience. Even when we didn't know what the part of obedience was, so I sure this in an Anglican church, and that's my background, and I tell you, when the Anglicans get this, you better watch out, because I'm actually what's called a charismatic, actually a Methodistican with a charismatic Pentecostal flavor, but an ordained Anglican minister. And I was sharing this a couple of years ago in Pentecost at an Anglican church in England, and as I was sharing the exactly the same thing, as an example, I didn't know there was a retired priest in the congregation who had had very, very bad skin disease on his hand, and he had covered up his hands with gloves. And just as I shared that word, are you willing to allow the Lord to take your weakness and multiply into whatever God wants to do to constitute a miracle, to change the city? He did that, and suddenly both of his hands began to burn, and he had to take his gloves off after all these years of covering up, and his hands were totally made whole. Dear friends, 
I mean, I'm only telling you stories because I felt this morning the Lord said, be very real with the people. Let them know what the power of obedience is, even in your weakness. Because let me tell you, he and I feel weak right now because of the casualties that we've been going through. But one of the most amazing truths about the power of God comes when we see how the promise of God can never be negated. Let me take you into a little bit of biblical history, a biblical tour, shall we say. But we find this riveting part of Scripture in Matthew chapter 1. And it goes like this. Abraham was the father of Isaac, who was the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Abinadab, Abinadab, the father of Nation, Nation, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, Jesse, the father of King David. Now, that's riveting, isn't it? Be honest, it's totally boring. But why is it in Scripture? Because it's not boring to God. I'm going to take you and show you that God never forgets a promise that he has made. To understand how God works, you have to go back. In this case, I'll unpack it for you to Genesis 38. And here you have the story about what happens when Judah appears on the scene, and he has a wife, and with the wife he has three sons. We start to run about verse 6. Judah got a wife for Ur, in those days, you could go ahead and find wives for your sons. I have two sons. I tried to find wives for them, and they said, don't you dare do that. God said, no, I do it another way now. So I was very happy to relinquish that one over to God. We've got wonderful daughters-in-law. But anyway, in this case, Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn. Her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. Now, that's a very hard part of Scripture. Thankfully, I don't have to explain that one today. Uh, Pastor Ron probably will do this in an upcoming series called Some of the More Difficult Passages of Scripture. Anyway, then Judah said to Onan, lie with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to produce offspring for your brother. That's very awkward as well. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he lay with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from producing offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight. He was put to death also. That's part two of that series. Really awkward scripture, but it's there for a reason. The clue is the misuse of God-given stewardship. There's a clue in here, and it continues now. He's beginning to run out of sons, because two sons were now extinguished. This could be very fearful unless you understand it in the bigger picture of God's promise. Judah then said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, live as a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought, well, he's going to die too, just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's house. Basically, I'll call upon you when my younger son is ready to take you as a wife. Well, after a long time, Judah's wife, this is now Judah, she died, and he went into grief. And then one day, 
he was told about Tamar, and he was told that Tamar was, you know, still waiting. Well, we can unpack the scripture. Then Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to shear his sheep. Now, this is really odd. In scripture, there's a reason why it's here. She took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, then sat down at the entrance to Enim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that though Shelah had not grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. She had the promise in her life and in her womb for a destiny that had not yet been fulfilled and had been denied already by her father-in-law, but she was clinging on to a promise. When Judah, who still knew that Tamar was around but was trying to forget about the promise, saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she'd covered her face, not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law. He went over to her by the roadside and said, come now, let me sleep with you. That's the next part of that series. Very awkward, but there's something here that's budding in the womb of God, of God's purpose for his people. And what will you give to me to sleep with you? She asked, well, I'll send you a young goat for my flock, he said. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it, she asked. Well, what kind of pledge should I give you? Your seal, your cord, your staff in your hand. It's like your, this is your driving license, this is your passport, she answered. So he gave them to her and slept with her, and she became pregnant by him. Remember the father-in-law. And then she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. Meanwhile, Judah sent the young goat to get back the pledge he had given, the driving license, whatever it would have been. Um, and he said, where, and, and, and the servant said, where's the, where's the prostitute who used to live here? Well, there's never been a prostitute here. Went back to Judah and said, I can't find her. And Judah said, well, you know what? I gave her something anyway, so let's just forget about the whole thing. Until three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law, Tamar, is guilty of prostitution. And as a result, she is now pregnant. This is like a, a Tom Clancy movie coming to life in the scripture. Um, Clive Custler, maybe. Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. Father-in-law, this is not very loving. Yeah, but she's let the family down. Yeah, but father-in-law, you were the perpetrator of this. As she was being brought out, she said, oh, hi, dad. Um, just, good to see you. Uh, just to let you know, here's the message. I'm pregnant by the man who owns these. See if you recognize the seal and cord and staff. And this is when you hear that in the heavenlies. Da, 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 da. And it suddenly all makes sense to him. Oh my, oh my, oh my. She is more righteous than I am because I wouldn't give her to my son Shella, and he does not sleep with her anymore. When the time came, she gave birth to the twin boys. As she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand, and the midwife took a scarlet thread, tied it on the wrist, and said, this one came out first. But when he drew back, his hand, his brothers came out, and she said, so this is how you've broken out. In other words, the one who should have didn't, but the one who was waiting was tenacious, knew there was a promise of birth, knew there was a promise of breakthrough, and he was named Perez. Then his brother, who had the scarlet thread in his wrist, came out and was given the name 
Zara. See, there's a spirit in the church that believes in the Word of God for obedience to take what little bit I have. And when we stick our hand out, as if God says, no, I'm going to give you that spirit of perseverance. Don't let up on the promises that I've given to you in the past in your life, your family life, your business life, your church life, your community life, your state life, your national life, because I never forget a promise. And even if the process seems unjust and irregular and even sinful, somehow in the middle of the promise, God is able to process, clarify, cleanse, purify, remove the bondages in the past of the issues that try to weigh us down and brings us into that moment of breakthrough. Now, this is important for us because, again, in Scripture, we're wondering, well, where is the Scripture going to go? Like, where are we going? The next part of the story emerges in the book of Ruth, where here you have this woman who's now a widow with two daughters who are both widows. They've lost their husbands. And in those days, if you lose your husband, you lose your status, your, you lose sort of your uh, inheritance, you lose your purpose. And so, rightfully, we have this woman, Naomi, who says to her daughters-in-law, go back to your own people, get a husband. Orpah, one of them, does go back, but Ruth says, no, I'm going to stay with you. And there's that wonderful verse that I'm sure you all know. Verse 16, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. And then they're going to stick together. They're going to move together. They're not going to be separated. So the two women went on until they came to Santa Fe. When they arrived in Santa Fe... The whole town was stirred. This is important. Because of the obedience of these two women who wouldn't break a covenant, who knew they had a destiny, who knew they had a purpose, who knew there was a promise, and Ruth had an unfulfilled promise in her room. She knew there was something God needed to do, and she would not leave her mother-in-law. Something was stirring in the city when this one little unit of two people said, you know what? We're going to move into our destiny. We're going to cling tenaciously to the promises that God has given to us in the past. Well, now we move on into the next part of this drama, which is quite incredible because this is all in the Bible, dear friends. And no, so Naomi knows there has to be a breakthrough for her daughter-in-law. And she's gleaning in the field of Boaz, that unmarried man, and suddenly we have what we call in the philosophy a disclosure. We find it here. One day Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her daughter-in-law, should I not try to find a home for you where you will be well provided for? Is not Boaz, with whose servant girls, you've been a kinsman where you're, you're gleaning, that means you're taking the leftovers of the harvest, Shouldn't, isn't, isn't this something that you should be thinking about? Tonight, he's going to be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. And this is really, really crucial. In Ruth chapter 3, verse 3, you've got one of the most powerful verses in the entire Bible of laying claim to the fullness of the promise of God in your life, my life, the life of the light, the life of Santa Fe, because we're talking about Bethlehem then, but I'm putting Santa Fe in because we have seen this in cities all over the world, when one church is going to cling tenaciously to the promise, irrespective of the odds. Chapter 3, verse 3, four things you have to do 
First of all, Ruth, go and wash. Wash? What does that mean? It means wash away the tribulations, the doubts, the sorrow, the self-pity, the sin done to you or you've done to others. Don't let the enemy intimidate, take you out, weigh you down. Wash it. Get rid of it. Move it. We've got the blood of Christ. We're going to be doing communion in a few moments, celebrating communion, understanding the power of blood Christ is eternal to wash away every form of intimidation and doubt. Number two, go and perfume yourself. Perfume yourself? Yeah. Well, for women that might make sense, but why would men perfume themselves? Because that's not what that means in the Hebrew. It means rise up into the fullness of your anointing. Don't be jealous for somebody else's anointing, not for Pastor Ron, not for John, not, certainly not for me. You don't want my anointing, because if you get my anointing, you're going to get my problems. And you don't want my problems, and I don't want yours, but your anointing is as specific and strategic as mine, John, Pastor on it, and this is important to grasp this in Scripture. We have a consumeristic spirit in the church today where we want to go after other people's anointing because we like what we see. No, Naomi is saying, Ruth, you rise up in your anointing. Number three, I want you then, after that, to go and put on your best clothes. What does that mean? Right now, Ruth is facing this direction, gleaning somebody else's leftover harvest in widow's garment. To put on the best clothes means do a 180-degree turn, go and face a new harvest, a new destiny, a new purpose, but put on the bridal garment. It's a positional shift in thinking. That's what I was talking about earlier this morning in the Bible. Every example I've given you is a positional shift in thinking from the individual to the church to the business to the city and so on. And then she says to her daughter-in-law, I want you now to go down to the place where Boaz is lying, go and uncover his feet, and, and he'll tell you what to do. This is the threshing floor, which in the Bible is where God removes the chaff from the wheat. He thrashes out the rubbish in our life. And he says, now let me give you the seed of the life. And she was obedient to what God, through her mother-in-law, told her to do, and then by what Boaz said. Now, it's an amazing love story. I know you know the end. They got married in the end. They gave birth to a son. And then the woman came to Naomi Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous through Israel. He will renew your life, sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child, laid her in the lap, cared for him. The woman living there said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. Obed. He was the father of Jesse the father of David, and this is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Abinadab, Abinadab the father of Nation, Nation the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, Boaz the father of Obed, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David. Now, do you see why Matthew decided it was important and imperative right at the beginning of the New Testament to put in this an extraordinary promise that God said, I will never forget a promise. And through all the vicissitudes and ups and downs of the women and these people in the Bible I've narrated to you this morning, 
suddenly God releases the promise. And you and I become these shifts, these igniters of promises from our generations past, from the family promises past that may have lost en route for whatever reason or sin or, or travail that they've gone through. God looks for one person, one church within a family, within a city, within a, a state to see, are you willing to reach out and be tenacious to that promise? Because I have never forgotten the promise to give in a city. I've never forgotten the promise to give in a church. I've never forgotten the promise to give in a family. I've never forgotten the promises. Are you willing to trust me in that? See, this, dear friends, is important when we're feeling down or doubtful or uncertain about what God wants to do. And there was a story in 2 Kings 13. And you have this time when Elisha, that famous prophet, was almost about to die and go to be with the Lord. And Joash, the king of Israel, went down and said, My father, my father, the chariots, the horsemen of Israel. Elisha said, Get a bow and arrow. And he did so. Take the bow in your hands, he said to the king of Israel. When he had taken the, Elisha, put his hands on the king's hands. Open the east window, he said. And he opened it. Shoot, Elisha said. And he shot. Here's the promise of God. Taking in hand the king, even though the king was, was sinful, and the Lord's arrow of victory. You'll, be completely, you'll completely destroy the Arameans at Aphek. And he said, take the arrows, and the king took them. Elisha said, strike the ground, and he struck it three times, and he stopped. The man of God, Elisha, was angry and said, you should have struck the ground five or six times. Then you would have destroyed your enemy. Now you'll only defeat it three times. Why is that important? I mean, didn't, didn't the king do what, what, what Elisha asked him to do? Yes or no? And that's not an Anglican answer where you're sitting on the fence. Let me tell you what that is. Elisha said, take the arrow, strike the ground. In the king's quivers in those days where you would keep your arrows, you would use the six or seven arrows. And God said, I want you to take all the arrows. Don't keep a little back for a retirement. Don't keep a little back in case I don't break through. Trust me with what I've given to you. And I want you to strike the ground. Now, I can't do this because of the shoulder injury, but what he's actually saying, I want you to take the arrows, and the, the better translation in Hebrew, don't just tap the ground. I want you to penetrate, impregnate this ground, and don't stop till they tell you to stop. Can I use three arrows? No, use all the arrows, but I have nowhere I was left. I'll create new arrows. Keep penetrating. Keep impregnating. I've got a promise. We were talking a pale rider with Clint Eastwood in Pastor Ron's office and, and how Clint Eastwood was seen hitting this great big rock when the others were gold panning in the stream. He kept hitting the rock when there was no breakthrough, but in that rock there was a nugget of gold. And you see, when we are willing to take the arrows even if it seems improbable, and we strike our area of responsibility, no matter how minuscule it might seem, God says, you keep striking the telly to stop, and I will then open up that nugget of gold that I've had waiting for you, which you can then share with the rest of the city. This power of obedience, dear friends, is so utterly essential for us to understand in a time like this. Two more quick things I'm going to pray with you. When I think about Scripture in this day and age, and 
you know, there's John and me right now. We're going through our things and our wives and various issues. What's really important is that we need to know God never has forgotten about us. We're in a fallen world. There are issues, but God's promises will not be denied, will not be ignored. And there comes a moment in the, in the life of Elisha again. When Elisha meets this woman who's in debt, it's 2 Kings 4, and the children are going to be sold off to pay the debts. And suddenly we get this incredible story of what Elisha says to this woman. Go around to your neighborhood, and I want you to collect all the jars, because she only had a little bit of oil. That's all she had. Now, these jars are not little jam jars. These jars in those days were great big holding jars, 10, 15, sometimes gallons, huge big things. And can you imagine going to all the neighbors and saying, have you got a jar I could have? What do you want it for? Well, I'm going to, actually, God's told me to fill it, to, to take it to him. Well, it seems imp- incredible and improbable. But out of her obedience, she collected, or her sons collected all the jars. They brought it to Elisha, shut the door, go into your place for privacy and prayer. And God began to fill every single jar till every jar was filled. She could then sell it all and go and pay all of her debts. Why is this important? Because Elisha is like God's promise, God's word to us this morning. Either we're willing to believe it or not. The oil, no matter how small it might be, a little fish, a little staff, bucket of water, that's the provision of God. No matter how small, we may think, I can't do much for the city. Oh, yes, you can. You might well be that person who offers that little bit of all you have when all the jars have been collected on behalf of the neighborhood And God fills this with his anointed promise. The woman actually represents the church who is available and is obedient. And if you're willing to be like that, God is saying, then I can do the impossible through you for the whole city of Santa Fe. No, for the whole state of New Mexico. No, even for the entire USA. Why not? God looks for one person who is willing to believe in the promise of God irrespective of the issues in the past. And the jars... Well, those are our communities because, you see, miraculously, God always fills the size of the container that we offer him. Don't please ever think your, your container, your life is of no importance, dear friends, because it is. And this is how I want to end this morning. If I had been the PR agent of Jesus... I probably would have thought that the best miracle he could start his ministry off with was the late raising of Lazarus. I mean, that would kind of be important, John. It would kind of get the attention of people. But instead, he goes to a wedding. And there are mothers there. And when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said, they've got no more wine. Well, you know the story. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. And nearby stood six stone wafer jars. These were ones, we're told, holding 20 to 30 gallons. These are, like I was saying in 2 Kings 4, they're awfully big jars. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they fill them to the brim. Now draw some out, take it to the master, take it to the government, take it to the governor, taking it to the president. That's what this means in context. 
They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He didn't know where it had come from. The servants knew where it had come from. Everybody brings out the choice wine first, then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. You've saved the best till now. What does that mean? Because here's what Jesus was doing. He was taking all the best promises of the past. God never forgets a promise. Bringing it into the present. And then Jesus was saying, now, if you think that's amazing, see, we are all mostly water. Some scientists say we're up to 80% water. I don't know, I'm not a scientist. But what, what he is saying, if you offer me yourself, I'll make you into the choicest of wine because I've been saving the best for last. That's the miracle of that passage. And with that in mind, and on our journey, I want to pray with you. Father, we're living in an amazing moment of history. Thank you for the light. Thank you for Pastor Ron. Thank you for those who work with him. I want to pray, Father, today that you will take this amazing fellowship, but please never let it off the hook with second best. I want to pray, Father, you'll again stir up an even higher desire of tenacity and perseverance as they make themselves available, positioned for what you might want to be doing in and through them. That will you say to the individual or to the fellowship, it's time to wash, it's time to perfume, it's time to put on the new sets of clothing, prepare for the next stage. It's time to go to the threshing floor. That, Father, there will be a, a willingness, a desire, that when we take those arrows, those promises, those arrows are your promises in our lives and our generational lives and our church life and, Father, our business life. Father, would you please not let us off the hook that we will become tenacious to strike, impregnate, bang that ground that, Father, you will bring to pass the promises that you have positioned in this territory, in this terrain, in this ground, even for a time such as this. I pray, Father, that we will be jealous and zealous for those jars and that we can bring our neighborhoods to you, not presumptuously, but out of humility, and offer ourselves to you first, even if we feel our hands are a little withered. You want to be astonished by the power of our obedience. I pray, Father, that you will be so astonished by the next stage you're going to take the light into in the days that lie ahead. Father, I pray for your fervor. I pray for your tenacity to be released in this place at a level and a desire never had before because, Father, time is running out globally. We look at the nations and we know, gosh, things are speeding up and coming to a close. I pray, Father that you will also take this amazing fellowship and remind them <laughs> that you have saved the best to last. I ask your blessing and your purpose upon them as you take the water, their lives, and turn it into precious wine that the city, the state, the nation will enjoy because it releases your purpose in their lives because you found a church that was willing to be obedient no matter what the cost was, and you got the breakthrough. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thank you, Alice. So we're going to come around to the table of the Lord. This is our communion Sunday. We're going to complete our service this morning. That was an excellent word.
let's just, uh, if you would, let's just show our appreciation to John and Alistair. Great word this morning. Appreciate that. Thank you very much. You're welcome. So as um, men and women that are going to serve us this morning are bringing forth the elements, you guys ready? Come on up. So in um, Luke chapter 7, this is an easy one to remember, 711. Luke 7:11 says that Jesus went with his disciples to the village of Nain, and there was a large crowd following him there, and there was a funeral procession that was coming out as he approached the village gate, and a young man who had died was the widow's only son, and a large crowd from the village was with her, and when the Lord saw her, his heart overflowed with compassion would just say that the Bible says that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He didn't have compassion 2,000 years ago and ran out of compassion. He has compassion this morning. He says, and when the Lord saw her, his heart overflowed with compassion. Don't cry, he said, and he walked over to the coffin and touched it, and the bearers stopped Young man, he said, I tell you, get up. And the dead boy sat up and began to talk. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. And great fear swept the crowd, and they praised God, saying, A mighty prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people today. And the news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding countryside. And so we see here in this story, this widow had lost her only son, and as a result of that, she had really lost her life as well. Uh, the son was the means to her support, and without the son, there was no hope left for her. So when Jesus raised the boy, not only did he give the boy life, but he gave the widow life as well. In uh, John chapter 6, Jesus says that, I am the bread of heaven, I am the bread of life. And then he goes on to says that whosoever eats of me uh, will, will never hunger again, eating this bread of life. He says that he is this living water that whosoever drinks of him would never thirst again. And he goes on to say, uh, and, and this gets a little um, uh, confusing for some of the disciples at that point, but... Um, he says that I, anyone that eats my flesh and drinks my blood will have this life, this eternal life. And at that point, it says that many of the disciples uh, departed. They left because it was a hard saying. It was a hard saying. And then he looks at his disciples. He looks at the 12, and he says, are you going to leave as well uh, because of this hard saying about eating my flesh and drinking my blood? And they said, Lord, essentially what they said, Lord, we don't, this is over our head. We don't really understand what you're saying. But one thing that we understand is that you have the words to eternal life. We understand that. We understand that, you know, and we believe that you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. This is what we believe. We don't know about eating flesh and drinking blood, but we know that you have the words to eternal life. 
So this morning, as we you know, reflect on the words that Alistair shared about the promises of God, the promises of God coming true, God has made promises to some of you about life and about relationship, about businesses, about healing, healing in your body, about wayward children that you see with your eyes that are not walking the ways of God. God has made certain promises to you. And as we come this morning and we come and partake of the bread of heaven and we the symbolism of his broken body and his shed blood for our sins, we remember the promises. We remember those promises that God will never leave you. He will never forsake you. That he is a God that his promises are yes and amen. That means that they are certain to come true. Maybe you haven't seen it. Maybe it hasn't come to pass in your life. But according to the word that we heard this morning, it is being birthed. It is pregnant. The promises are pregnant. And they are coming. The, those promises are coming your way. And as you come this morning and as you partake, I just want you to thank God. Give him thanks this morning in your heart and in your mind for the promises that you are going to receive that you haven't received yet. So if you'll come in a counterclockwise motion and uh, take the bread and the cup, we'll partake together. So Isaiah chapter 53, the scripture says that speaking it's a messianic promise, a prophetic promise, word that was given that hadn't been fulfilled at the time that Isaiah spoke and, and this was written, but it was a promise that was sure to come, that he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Father, this morning as we think about the promises that you've made to us, to each of us, promises that we've heard, that we've kept in our heart, dreams that we have in our heart, God longing for the fulfillment of those, we rest assured, Father, that your promises, yes, are yes and amen, that 
they are on their way. The promises are on their way. And we are reminded of that this morning as we partake of the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, the promise that he gave to the disciples that night. He said, this is my body which is broken for you. All of you partake. And another promise that he made, this cup is the new covenant shed for the forgiveness of sins in my blood. All of you partake. I would like for you just for a moment before we close our service to reflect on words that you've heard this morning, promises that you have held in your heart, listening to God's Holy Spirit, just asking, Lord, what are you saying to me this morning? What are you saying to me? Am I the widow with just a little bit of oil and I the little boy with just a few fish and a few loaves what are you saying to me father speak Lord is what Eli told Samuel say speak Lord your servants listening Your servant's listening. Speak to our hearts, Father. Lord, not only speak, but as your word says, it's not the hearers of the word that are justified before you, but it's those that when you do speak are faithful and obedient. Lord, we'd ask this morning that you'd give us faithful and obedient hearts as we go out. God, that you would speak to us and we'd be faithful to obey. Lord, we want to just thank you for our service and our time with you this morning, the presence of your Holy Spirit. Lord, we're so excited. We're excited excited to be with your people. Why don't we just stand and just lift a shout of praise to our God because we serve a mighty God. Amen. Hallelujah. Father, we bless you. We praise you. As we go our way, Father, lead our steps, direct our way, that we may bring honor and glory to your name. We say this in the name of your son, Jesus. And God's people said, amen. Amen. God bless you guys.